This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 5th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. This is Ed Zollers coming to you from Phoenix, and we're going to be talking this week about various things that happened in the area of federal taxes. And this week we're going to talk about first the IRS giving us details on automatic refunds for people who were paid unemployment compensation. We also have the IRS giving a formal notice on the extension of time to file 2020 Form 1040s. We'll talk about why that's important and what you can do with it. We also have the IRS issuing an update of the guidance on the employee retention credit uh, for the version for the first six months of 2021, what that means and what we can do with that. And then I want to close out this one, which is not really a development right now, but a thing I'm getting a lot of questions about. Uh, which is the bit of a mess regarding whether we can claim employee retention credit on wages paid to an individual who controls more than half of the stock of a corporation they're employed by. We need to go down that path, which gets messy, but we'll start working down that path and see where we go. So let's start with our IRS announcement of the automatic refund program for unemployment compensation. This was announced in IRS News Release 2021-71, titled The IRS to Recalculate Taxes on Unemployment Benefits, Refunds to Start in May. Okay, issued by them on the May 31st or March 31st, the last day of the month. We got this. Now, if you remember, Internal Revenue Code Section 85C was added by ARPA on March 11th. 85C allowed taxpayers who had modified adjusted gross income of $150,000 or less to exclude up to $10,200 of unemployment compensation from their income. Problem was, of course, that a lot of taxpayers had already filed returns before March 11th, and those taxpayers who had received unemployment compensation following the instructions that were out, and frankly, the law that was on the books at that time, ended up including that as taxable income. So there are a number of taxpayers who have already paid taxes on their unemployment compensation, and now Congress came back and said a lot of them are going to exclude, be able to exclude, I should say, some or all of that from income. So now we have a bit of a mess that there are a ton of potential refund claims out there. One of the first things the IRS did was said, don't send in amended returns. Don't send in those returns right now. The IRS is, shall we say, a little behind in processing things at the moment. And the last thing they wanted was a ton of 1040Xs showing up, all of which were going to be asking for refunds related to unemployment compensation and probably start flooding the phones with taxpayers then asking, where's my check? Because taxpayers are good at asking, where's my check? So the IRS said, don't send those in. We will give you further guidance later about how we're going to handle these changes on the 2020 returns that had already been filed. And they specifically began telling people that they were planning to try to do an automatic refund program for those people who had paid tax on unemployment compensation with returns that had already been filed. This notice deals with that specifically. In this case, the IRS states that they will begin issuing refunds in May. However, 
caution. It goes on and tells us as well that the program will carry on into summer. Now, May is when they expect to make the first refunds. You might read that as May 1st, but remember, May has 31 days. They could go all the way to the 31st day of May and still be within the statement they had given. As well, this goes into summer. Summer begins late in June, so we're looking at least that period of time over which they expect to be paying. And remember, summer continues all the way until late in September. So conceivably, you could have a program that started on May 31st and ends up paying out all the way until fall begins, the first day of fall in late September. And that payment, that refund, automatic refund system would be within what this notice says the IRS is going to do. So be careful. Too many people read this and think April, you know, May 1st, I'll get a check, you know, and it'll go into summer. Well, okay, that, that means that, you know, by early summer it'll be done, maybe. And I think the IRS probably prefer it if they could get it to work that way. But the way it's worded has bought them a lot of time uh, during which to go ahead and handle this. As well, they have made it clear that they will start with returns for taxpayers where there's only one taxpayer that got unemployment. Well, obviously, for single, head of household, uh, married filing separate, that's easy. There's only one taxpayer. What they're telling you indirectly is if you are a married couple with a joint return and both of you got unemployment compensation, they're not going to refigure those until pass two. So that's later, after the first pass returns are done. That also tells me the IRS believes that's going to be more complicated for them to handle, and they want some more time to get that program. So we're going to see how they work it. Now, you probably know, and I'm sure you have at least somewhere one return sitting for this, have exactly one, that this wasn't the only change in the law. There was also the advanced premium tax credit. Congress in the American... I always get this a little bit wrong. The American Recovery Plan, I always want to say Program Act of 2021, they also said that for 2020, you would not have to repay any advanced premium tax credit. Now, obviously, people have already filed returns paying that, and there are people right now who have returns that would have had to repay it. And the problem is, though, there's, you know, the software is just taking a look, computing, because you want to do the computations just in case, you know, they qualify for additional credit, because generally you're not going to get that perfect. So you're probably going to qualify for either additional credit or a repayment. There's no real way to not, in, you know, to not have this on the return unless you just left off anything dealing with the 1095A which has you highly concerned. You'll get letters from the IRS about why you didn't include that. So now we have a problem. Not only has the IRS not told us yet about what they're going to do about refunding prior ones, but they also haven't officially told us about how to handle current. There have been reports, be that I heard on Friday, where one software vendor has claimed the IRS has told them well, they actually just said they issued informal guidance, but that guidance is nowhere to be found that I've seen. 
Uh, so we'll just say right now that apparently they've tipped off a vendor, at least one, if not more than one. But this one was apparently able to go with it right now about how you could file current returns. And sounds like what the plan would be is to just if that, you know, if the if you compute, you do your computation, reconcile the 1095A. If that shows a balance needs to be repaid, you simply don't send the form in. You know, if it shows that we get additional credit, we'd send it in. And the software would automatically suppress it if it didn't compute any amount of refund or any amount of additional credit. So that's fine, but it still doesn't deal with the whole question about what about those that filed earlier. We're still covered by that IRS guidance saying don't do a meta returns till we tell you what to do. Will the IRS automatically refund this? We don't know. They have not made any statement I'm aware of that suggests yet they will automatically refund, but they also haven't said they won't, and this seems like one that, if anything, would be simpler to not make refund for than the unemployment. I think they're prioritizing the unemployment because that got a lot of coverage. The advanced premium tax credit, my guess is that tax any taxpayers, many taxpayers that got burned by that in the past probably went back in and tuned down you know, and just would get the credit on the return. Those people will regret doing that this year. So I suspect it may be fewer returns are impacted by that than are impacted by the unemployment. So, yeah, we have that little issue. And don't forget, we still have the problem of, and the Irish remind you, that all of this not going to help you on the states. As well, the service says, while they can recompute your return based on unemployment, right, they, they can automatically figure out how to back that off. And they can make adjustments for things already reported on the return. They do warn you that if you, by making this change, reducing your income, you now qualify for additional deductions or you that aren't on the original return or additional credits that weren't filed with the original return, you probably will have to amend. The example they use is if you qualify for the earned income credit on the original return, they can go ahead and recompute the changes to the EIC based upon what you gave them with the original return. But if it turns out that you hadn't previously qualified for the earned income tax credit, and now you do, then you've got to file the amendment. If it turns out previously, let's say that you had to make a non-deductible IRA contribution, right? Now deductible, will they fix that? Probably not. You'd have to indicate, I want it to be deductible. You probably would have to, you might be concerned with things like certain educational benefits, credits and um, deductions, you know, that you might have been barred based on your income before that now suddenly you can claim, but since it wasn't on the original return, it won't be automatic. So yes, taxpayers will need to review the returns, even though the IRS is, quote, automating the process. So just be aware of that side of, the, of how things work. The IRS also finally formalized the extensions to file Form 1040 and Notice 2021-21. This came out on March the 29th. Twelve days after their announcement, they were going to extend the tax. They were going to extend the time to file 1040s to May 17th. They have now given us the formal announcement. This was important because how they were going to do it could have made a difference. The real key was were they going to use Section 7508 Gap A? And that was important because that if you move it based on that, some other things will move automatically. And the other issue was Congress had tied in something to that. Remember, if your original economic incentive payment, the advance payment of the recovery rebate 
for 2021 was based on your 2019 return, the law tells the IRS when your 2020 return is filed, so long as it is processed by a fixed date, the IRS is supposed to recompute your credit. And if your credit would be more, send you a larger check. If that decreases your credit, we don't worry about it. Well, that date was tied to 90 days after the due date for the 1040, which would have meant that it would have been due, you know, it, the process date would have ended up happening under that 90-day test on July 13th. If 7508 cap A is used for this purpose, and we go to May 17th as our filing date, then 90 days from that would be August 15th. So an additional month, essentially, that the IRS would have to consider returns, 2020 returns filed, that they would have to pick those up and recompute. The IRS might have preferred not to do that. Now, the law actually said eventually if 758 pushes back far enough, you can't go past September 1st regardless. Well, the catch was, could the IRS just use like their generic ability to grant people extensions to file, which they actually the law gives them that right. And the answer is they could have, but the complication would have been, while they could have waived the penalty for late filing, for late payment, I should say, they couldn't really waive the penalty, the interest. Interest is not waivable by the IRS, except under 7508 Cap A and 7508 itself. And reality is that the IRS you know, announced they were going to waive interest, so we figured 7508 Cap A was going to be the way we were going to do it. And this confirmed it, so we can feel a little more comfortable that 7508 Cap A was how they did it. But this was a far more limited extension than the 2020 version was based on 7508 Cap A. The IRS very narrowly knocks this down and says, look, this only applies basically to 1040 series returns, to 1040, 1040SR, 1040NR, 1040PR, 1040SS, or 1040SP, the 1040 series forms. It does not apply to any other type of form, so it will not apply to 1120s. It will not apply to 1041s. It will apply to 5498s. So you do have a, a and that, that's actually a June date that's getting pushed back one month, uh, largely because you have to wait until May to figure out if you have contributions for 2020. We'll discover that that's also in this mix. So we're in that particular background. So we've got it. But it doesn't cover anything else. Now, as I said, a couple of clarifications. The IRS, because you say 508A, there really was no choice, I feel, but to do this, but they do make it clear it does extend the time to put money into your IRA for 2020 and claim the deduction or claim it is a 2020 contribution. So you can make another one for 21. Also does the same thing for health savings accounts, medical savings accounts, and educational savings accounts. You can relate those back to 2020 all the way through May 17th. So that's kind of an interesting aside. It also extends a limited number of claims for refund. Now, for this, you want to double and triple check that you're following this correctly because it does not extend everything. If you have a 1040-based credit or refund claim where the statute to claim it would have expired for sometime between April 15th of 2021 
and May 17th of 2021, your claim will be timely if filed by May 17th. So if you have one of those claims, for instance, let's say your 2017 individual income tax returns that were filed before April 15th in, 20, in 2018, well, you're going to be able to go to May 17th to put that amended return in play if you've not already sent a claim for refund. So we have that additional time to work with. However, as I said, nothing else is covered. That means you cannot consider uh, that you can that you have an extension. You do not have an extension of time to file a calendar year 1040, or I should say calendar year 1120. Right? So your C Corp return has to go in, or an extension has got to go in by April 15th. Do not have, which is really important, an extension on 1041s. So the 1041 for a calendar year estate or for a trust, which generally will become calendar year automatically, those are not automatically extended to May 17th. You have to get your extension in on April 15th. And the IRS reiterated that estimate payments, the first estimate for 2021, is due on April 15th. I will not get into, I'm going to cover one controversy this week, not the other. I'm not getting into a long discussion about whether or not you could pay extra on an extension on May 17th and treat that as the first estimate. My guess is the law really isn't totally clear. Secondly, it's generally an immaterial amount of underpayment penalty. Thirdly, if your client's really freaked out about that, then just pay a lot with the first estimate on April 15th and be done with it. Right, so I'm not going to go too far into that right now in that theory. Like I said, one oddball problem at a time. I got another different oddball problem to handle this week. But the IRS notice also did not mention the gift tax. So if your client is going to have a gift tax return due, I would strongly suggest you file the standalone gift tax extension. I would be more than a bit uncomfortable trying to do a 4868 before April 15th and claiming that that should cover. I understand your theory, but why do you want to risk getting into a long bit of correspondence or even a court case with the IRS over the question whether your extension was valid for the gift tax return when there is a simple way to solve the problem ahead of time? Right? I mean, if we're going to talk about this two years from now when somebody didn't do that, but they had the 4868, yeah, we'll be arguing those other issues. But right now, you can make sure the argument never happens. And in many ways, the best thing for your client is an argument that never happens. So you can avoid that. I would send in the paper gift tax return extension. Just avoid the argument. Go ahead and send in the extension. Get it certified mail. And, you know, back that up and you show you did properly extend the gift tax return, regardless of whether it is or isn't covered by this extension. Because, again, it's not really clear. The IRS also, in those 2021-23, published guidance on the employee retention credit. We're going to talk about the ERC in general here in just a second. A more general ERC issue. But right now, let's talk about this particular new notice. This notice uh, basically... First, we had a notice come out 2021-20 a couple weeks ago. That notice told us about how the employee retention credit worked uh, for the 2020 version. And probably the most important stuff in that version, you know, as there were changes, but it also talked about how you determine wages if they'd been used for loan forgiveness for PP purposes, because if they have, you can't use them for ERC. And it told you about cases where you could, even though a wage was listed on the application for forgiveness, 
situations where you might still be able to say, well, we didn't need that wage for forgiveness based on other items on that forgiveness form. So you could still claim the ERC and they have the mechanics of doing that on that form. Well, this now comes and goes on top of that because that notice, 2020, 20, 2021-20, 2020s in there, that notice told us that it only covered the 2020 version of the ERC and did not, you know, it was not meant to be comprehensive guidance on the 2021 version. So that was going to come later. This is the later guidance. In the interim between Notice 2021-20 and new Notice 2021-23, which came out on April 2nd, Congress passed a third version of the ERC, extended one more time and changed it. So one of the first things Notice 2021-23 tells us is it does not address those changes that don't apply until July 1st. But it does address the employee retention credit that will apply for the 941s that we are going to be filing this month for the first quarter of 2021, as well as those 941s you're going to file in July for the second quarter of 2021. So it gives us some more information. Now, much of what it tells us are just things that changed versus what was in the 2020 version, which is it. So the good news is it builds on top of the prior notice. So to the extent that the prior notice covers something that was not changed by the you know, when we moved into 21, you can follow it. That does seem to suggest that we can use exactly the same PPP loan application rule issues we found in Notice 2021-20 for the ERC for this quarter. They do not appear to be mandating that we must uh, make our choice on the 941 in an irrevocable manner as to whether we're going to allow allow a amount of ways to be used for PPP loan forgiveness purposes or if it's going to be used for ERC purposes. There's a little bit of a risk that they, the SBA might argue, well, they're the ones really in charge of that once it was on their tough luck. But if the IRS let us amend it off, I don't see it's going to be a problem. So I think we're relatively safe there. It also issued a clarification of the uh, prior quarter rule. Some people I talked to were a little concerned. The prior quarter rule is the rule for if you're if you weren't partially or fully suspended your business in the first quarter this year, right? That's one way to get the ERC. The other way is to have a reduction in revenue of at least 20%. Under the 2021 version of the ERC, you could test that reduction in the current quarter. So compare quarter one of 2020 to quarter one of 2019 for a 20% reduction, or you could compare the prior quarter. Now, some people were concerned about how that worked or if it was even available for the first quarter of 21. The IRS makes very clear it's available for the first quarter of 21 and this is how it would work. I would take my total rep, my total gross receipts for the fourth quarter of 2020. I would take my total gross receipts for the fourth quarter of 2019. Okay, yeah, th this is later than the period we're testing the first quarter on. And I would look for a 20% drop fourth quarter to fourth quarter 20 to 19 or a 20% drop first quarter to first quarter 21 to 19. If either one of those has a 20% drop, I qualify under the drop in revenue rules. 
Some people were concerned that you couldn't use the first quarter because of the effective date of this was for 2020. And therefore, the 20, the fourth quarter, it was being used for testing back in the 20 version. So you couldn't use it again. I didn't see that was really a problem with this. Uh, some people were concerned about which quarter, you know, did I test fourth quarter 2020 against first quarter 2019? Or did I test fourth quarter 2020 against fourth quarter 2018? Now they make it clear. Fourth quarter 2020 is tested against the same quarter in 2019, fourth quarter 2019. So we're going to look for that 20% decline. Now, other question I get asked is, well, does PPP loan forgiveness count as gross receipt? The IRS references you to section 448C, and you'll have to go look at the regs, especially the updated ones that just got published at reg 1.448-1T, as we call where we hide those right now. Or is it, yeah, why is it? No, it's in two. It's, it's yeah, I forget where they moved them. Not in T, it's in, that's right. T was the other older ones. So we have new regs, though, that came out for after, you know, 2017, TCJ. The problem is the definition of gross receipts under 448 is very broad. And specifically, they tell you that tax-exempt interest is included. So the fact that we don't pay tax on the PP loan proceeds does not mean they're not revenue. And I have a feeling that it will count for gross receipts. It's broad. There's no obvious exception I read that I could see in the regs that would say it didn't count. It's just more tax-exempt income. The good news, though, is because of this current quarter, prior quarter, there's a reasonable chance that even if I do have to consider my PPP loan forgiveness in the first quarter in computing a reduction in revenue, um, if as long as the fourth quarter last year was down 20% as well, I just flip over, test that. And then for the second quarter of this year, I will now use the second quarter instead of doing the prior quarter. And the law tells us it's perfectly okay to work that way. The rate, you know, this notice says you can do it like that. That's not a problem. Uh, the IRS also gives us some reminders here, which I'd remind you of. Remember, the big changes are 70% credit versus 50 that we had before. And more importantly, instead of 10,000 of wages and healthcare costs per year per employee, this could be $10,000 of wages and healthcare costs per quarter per employee. So as the IRS points out, the 2020 version, the most you could get for one employee you know, the most credit you could get would have been 5000 half of 10 for the entire year, assuming that you were qualified for the entire year. If you're qualified for both of the first quarter payments, that credit could be 14000 as long as that employee had at least 10000 of qualified wages and health care costs in the first quarter and second quarter, and you otherwise were eligible to claim the credit during those periods. So, you know, it ends up being a more useful structure. Remind you of that. Also remind you that the small employer test uh, used to be if you had 100 or fewer employees, right? You got to claim the credit on all of your employees, not just the ones who weren't working. That small employer number is going to be bumped up to 500 or more employees. And you test employees by average numbers back in 2019. That's your test for employees to get whether you're a small employer. Yaris finally also dealt with the advanced payment rule. And they read it very restrictively. You need to be aware of that. So a couple of ways they could have read this. They read it in a relatively restrictive fashion. They view it as being the most you could be paid on your Form 7200s for a quarter, which they consider to be the advanced payment of the credit. 
So when you file that form, the total over the quarter is going to stop if you hit 70% of average wages back in 19. If you're seasonal, we change it a little bit. There are other different rules you're going to use. But basically, it's going to be a cap. It can cause a real problem if you have a taxpayer who came into business late in 19 and even a worse situation if you have somebody that started their business in the very first part of 20, right, since we were talking about being there as of February 15th for this credit, that's going to block their advance payment because they don't have any wages in 19. 70% of nothing is nothing. So they'll have to wait till they file their 941 to get a refund instead of being able to get it with the 7200s. That's just the way they structured that. So be aware of that. They do structure that very, very narrowly when they read about the advanced payment rules. Now let's go to this week's special topic, okay, which is what do we do about majority shareholder wages for a corporation and the Employee Retention Act? This was a problem effectively from the first day of the ERC, but we didn't care much. Because remember, back when I was teaching courses on the ERC back in March, you know, we talked about it beginning in March of 2020, uh, it became clear, and it became clear to me, that nobody cared about the ERC because the first thing you said was, well, if you get a PPP loan, you can't claim the ERC. And it's like, well, my client's going for PPP loans, so I don't care about that. But in December, we changed that rule and said, hey, you could actually still get an ERC credit, even if you got a PPP loan, as long as you don't reuse the same wages to both get the credit and get forgiveness. But a fundamental question that's buried in here, and it's been there all along, is do the rules under which this operate bar us from getting a majority shareholder? In essence, credit for that shareholder. That's the key question. And it's an interesting, if you want to get into how you do tax research, how you understand tax law, bottom line, understanding tax law begins with, always begins with, and you're not really going to be good until you accept this fact. It begins with the code because that's where the law begins. Okay. Reading the code involves two key concepts that can foul you up versus somebody who's just reading it and thinks they're getting it. First, which is not in play here, be very careful of definitional provisions that are in the code. Be sure you scan that entire code section or anything that specially defines a term for that section because Congress can redefine things as they wish. For instance, I mentioned that 7508A extension of time when the IRS has to consider 2020 returns, right? You know, they're going to consider 2020 returns, recalculate the EIP credit, and potentially send your client more money. Well, if you just read the provision they enacted, it said that as long as a return is filed by that date, the IRS will recompute. Okay, I know what filed means, right? I, I hit the button on my computer. It goes up to the IRS. The IRS computer says, hey, guys, yep, we see it. We're great. Or I take it to the post office, right? I get my certified mail receipt and I hand it to them. That's the date I filed the return. Except not in this case. The IRS go, the Congress goes further down in that section of the ARPA, of ARPA and then says, oh, by the way, for purposes of this section, a return shall be deemed filed on the date the IRS finally processes, processes the return completely. 
So you always have to watch out for that because you can't go jump on that file date because there's that definition that's going to define file to be something that you would not consider to be the filing date. The other thing you have to watch for constantly is cross-referencing. Uh, Congress loves to cross-reference. Why? Well, they've already written a set of rules, right? Let's say we've got some rules here. We have this thing. We don't want you getting a benefit, and we don't want your relatives getting a benefit if you control the business. We already wrote rules about you know relatives who can't who you can't get the benefit for. So why do we want to write a whole new set of them? We just want to go ahead and just borrow those rules, and there's no point in putting them in this section as well, because then there's a chance they start drifting apart if we modify them. We want to just go ahead and put these in and say, we're going to follow the rules in this other section, which is exactly what Congress did here. But then, when it, so you always had to follow cross-references. And here's the problem. In many cases, including this one, the section Congress cross-references itself cross-references other sections that have things that section wants to borrow. So in this case, we are going to start with section, we're going to start with the CARES Act. We're going to then follow its cross-reference to 51I1. We're going to follow 51I1 then. It's going to have two cross-references, one of them to section 152 and one of them to section 267. And we have to follow through on those cross-references. And only after we have looked at all four sections, the CARES Act 2301, Section 51I1 from the uh, Work Opportunity Tax Credit, which is where section, which what Section 51 deals with, Section 154, which deals with dependency exemptions, and Section 267C that deals with the uh, you know, constructive ownership of corporate stock, only after we have done all of that and have all of those in front of us and have digested those, can we begin to piece together how this exclusion for people that we cannot claim, employees whose wages will not qualify for the ERC, how that's going to work. Okay, so you have to do it. It's going to be a weird cross-referencing. And the start of the cross-referencing is found in Section 2301E of the CARES Act which is where we got the original employee retention credit. And it provides that rule similar to the rules of Section 51I1. IRC Section 51I1 shall apply for purposes of the ERC. So there is your cross-reference, right? We now have been put on notice. We have to go over now into the code and get Section 51I1. That starts us down the cross-reference path. And let me go ahead and follow this path for you. So like I said, we start with the CARES Act referencing 51I1. Well, 51I1, the Work Opportunity Credit, describes relatives of, you know, various relatives of people in control of the employer for whom if we hire them and they otherwise would have been qualified for Work Opportunity Credit, we're not going to get them because they're our relatives. We cannot hire our relatives for work opportunity tax credit benefits. That's not it. We're, we're not going to subsidize your family, is the idea Congress had. And what it references is, they said, well, we want to make sure it's the people that otherwise you could claim as a dependent or conceivably could have been played as a dependent, you know, if they had insufficient income. So it first references you to Section 154D2. That's where you find the list of barred relatives. Actually, it's A to G 
under 154D2, because we do skip H. The last one in that list we skip. We're told to do that. But then it also says, for purposes of determining who, you know, ownership of the interest in the company, we are to look to Section 267C. 267C talks about constructive ownership of stock. So this is where we're going to find out who is considered an indirect owner. Because as we're going to discover, the rules state that if you own shares directly or indirectly, you're considered, you know, shares owned directly or indirectly, if you control by directly or indirectly owning more than half of the shares, then the relatives to you are people the corporation will be unable to claim the credit on. So with that, let's get started down this. Let's take an example. Let's, let's just pose that I own 100% of the shares of an S corporation. And I hire my brother. My brother's an employee, legitimate employee, performing legitimate purposes for my services for my S corporation. Well, here's my problem. I can't get ERC wages on him. And that's very clear. I clearly control the corporation. I have 100% of all stock of the issued by the corporation. I control the corporation, whether it's CRS, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how complex my capital structure might have been. I own everything out there. So bottom line, I am a control owner and my brother is in the list because the list of people that I'm barred, the barred relationship list under 152DA2 to under D2A to G, get that right, includes uh, compared to the control owner, a child or descendant of a child, the brother, sister, stepbrother, stepsister of that control person, father, mother, or ancestor of either. So that would include uh, grand grandparents, you know, great grandparents, etc. Like I said, descendant of child would include grandchildren, great grandchildren, etc. So you have all of those. Stepfather or stepmother of that control person son or daughter of a brother or sister of that person, that means their niece and nep- nieces and nephews are in the mix, a brother or sister of the father or mother of the taxpayer. Now, that's interesting because we're, this is one of those places we're going to be splitting differences. So let's say that I have an Uncle Joe, right? Uncle Joe marries Wanda. When Uncle Joe marries Wanda, I'm probably going to refer to Wanda as Aunt Wanda. But here's the catch. Aunt Wanda is not the brother or sister of my father or mother. Joe is. So Joe would be a relative in this point, and Joe would be somebody who would be deemed to indirectly hold the shares I hold. But Wanda would not be so treated because Wanda is not the brother or sister of my father or mother. Wanda married the brother or, or brother, the brother in this case of my father or mother. So understand that. Also included is my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, or my sister-in-law. Those are all included in the grouping. Okay, so that's my grouping for essentially who I cannot claim, or who would be I should say I can't claim the benefit for. So pretty simple, right? And in this case, also, it's pretty clear my brother has that relationship. My brother is obviously my brother. So that means under 152D2B, he's listed there. And that means, sorry, guys, I cannot claim the work, the work opportunity tax credit on my brother. 
That also means I can't claim the employee retention credit on the wages paid to my brother. Uh, hint, you're going to want to use wages paid to my brother for PP loan forgiveness to the maximum extent possible because, again, I want to bias wages. I want to preserve as long as possible any wages that are eligible for ERC. So this would be a set of non-ERC wages. So just going to mention that in passing. Okay, well, let's go a little different. That, that was direct ownership. What about this indirect business? Well, let me take a look at this. So I'm going to posit the case where I hire my brother's sister-in-law. Okay. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at that background. Right. So if I do that, so this was my brother. I, if those of you look at the uh, slides, right, I was there in a 51I1. I have my, I take a look at those related to me. That sent me to 54D2, which my brother, we didn't worry about 267C because I didn't, you know, I directly owned the stock. We didn't need the indirect ownership rules. But let's change the facts a little bit again, okay? In this case, my brother indirectly owns 100% of the corporation, right? We already established that, right? Under 267C, 267C, which is indirect ownership, essentially says in that scenario that for purposes of constructive ownership, uh, you know, an individual shall be considered as owning stock owned directly or indirectly by or for his family. So for my brother's purposes, they would be, he would include in shares owned by his brother, sister, uh, whether by whole or half blood, spouse, ancestor, and lineal descendants. Okay, so that's it. So my brother, because I'm my brother's brother, right? Uh, he's going to be deemed to own every share I own. Okay, so let's say I hire his sister-in-law, right? His sister-in-law is obviously not my sister-in-law, right? It's his sister-in-law. So I guess actually, yeah. And which means that it's a sister-in-law that came through his wife. So yeah, we've got that, that old background. So has a sister-in-law through his wife. So the sister, you know, the sister of my sister-in-law is not my sister-in-law. That makes sense, hopefully. Right, so he does that. So my brother indirectly owns 100% of the S Corporation because I do. And because of that, the sister of his sister, right? His sister is my sister-in-law. The sister of his sister is his sister-in-law. The sister of my sister-in-law is not a barred person to me, but it's a barred person to my brother. So therefore, I will again not be able to claim the work opportunity credit on that. So if my brother marries the sister of one of my employees, I'm suddenly barred from claiming the work opportunity credit on my employee because my employee is now a, has a prohibited relationship to an indirect owner of a controlling interest because my brother indirectly has controlling interest because he is assigned in assigned my shares under 267C and therefore I can't claim the credit. Okay. You follow that so far. So mechanically, it means that no credit for my corporation because of the relationship my brother has. And basically follows through like this. Again, we're following our chart. We take a look here. If you look at, if you're looking at the slide version, you're going to see that little fuchsia arrow going across. And it talks about that we're going to look at 267C. My brother becomes an indirect owner. Now, we not just look at my list of barred people. I've got to look at his list of barred people. 
and his sister-in-law is on his list. Not on my list, but on his list. That means the sister-in-law is going to become a problem for my S-corporation. And I want you to note something. My brother doesn't have to be involved in the company in any way, shape, or form. His mere existence is enough to cause this problem. Right? That's the key. He's an indirect owner. It doesn't mean he actually does anything. He and I might not get along at all. I might have told him never to set foot in my business. Don't talk to me about anything about my business. And in fact, if he told me to do something, I'd do just the opposite. It doesn't matter. It's still going to be considered indirect ownership. Right? Just don't, don't try to apply rules that aren't there. Those rules aren't there. Now here's where the mess comes. Just a second. I'm my brother's brother. Now, if you remember, if I'm paid by the corporation, which seems likely, I am the brother of an indirect 100% owner. Right? If you go back to that list of people that are now barred on my brother's list, I'm on that list. Just like his sister-in-law is. So, in this case, it would appear that because I am the brother of an indirect owner, my wages are no will no longer count for this purpose. Right? I am the brother of an indirect owner. And as I said, even my brother has nothing to do with the corporation. I am the brother of... I'm on his barred list. And since he's an indirect loaner, his barred list is going to affect my corporation. Flip side of that is my barred list affects his corporation, assuming he has control of a business entity. Same difference. So again, it's the same as it was with his sister-in-law. We follow the future arrow. He's an indirect owner. We then go to his list of people that are going to be on the tough luck. Corporation won't get a credit for these people. I'm on that list. I can't avoid that list. I'm on the list. So it appears we're stuck. Right? Let's talk about this for a second. Our owner's out of luck here. Well, the black letter law does not look good. We've walked through the law. Right? Everything I mentioned here. And it wasn't as if anything that was listed there was at all ambiguous. Very clear how it worked, right? If, if you follow the sister-in-law example, you've got to follow the example back to me. I can't get out of it. I'm on that list just like the sister-in-law's. His sister-in-law's on that list. I'm on that list. I'm on his list. I can't avoid it. Right? It is a splashback problem. My ownership goes to him, which then causes me a problem of splashing back because now I turn up on his barred list, which affects my corporation. And some of you may be saying, wait, 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 isn't there rules under 267 that, yes, reattribution, but we're not reattributing here, anything. I'm not being attributed his ownership. I'm not losing it because he has, I'm not losing it because I'm being deemed own shares because he's indirectly deemed own shares. I actually own the shares, and but that's irrelevant. I'm being barred because I'm his relative and he, he is an indirect owner with no reattribution, just a single level of attribution, I get on his list. So 267C5 that some people are going to be screaming that that solves the problem. 
I realize it's related to what 267C5 was thinking about, but it doesn't work because there's no reattribution here. So be aware of that. That doesn't solve our problem, right? And again, it doesn't appear ambiguous, which is a problem. In fact, uh, and I mentioned here in the written materials that the um, that Tony Nitty and we're having a big, we've been having this for quite a while on Tax Twitter back and forth about this. I got a message from Tony during one of these discussions, and he was, you know, he's was been wrestling with this too saying there is this weird thing in the PATH Act committee reports from the Joint Committee on Taxation. And what happens there in that, so if you look at the Joint Committee on Taxation, and you want to go get this report, uh, it's actually going to be officially titled The Technical Explanation of the Protecting Americans from Tax Act of 2015, House Amendment Number 2 to the Senate Amendment to H.R. 2029. Uh, and the JCT reference to that is actually JCX-144-15, issued on December 15th of 2015. In that, the JCT essentially said, they talked about, they were just describing, because that, that, that the PATH Act, as you may remember, extended and modified the work opportunity credit. It didn't change 51C, but they were describing how the rule worked in general. And in one miscellaneous section, you got other rules. And they have the first two sentences of the other rules paragraph say, work opportunity tax credit is not allowed for wages paid to a relative dependent of the taxpayer. Okay. Yeah, no problem. But then the next sentence said, with no explanation, no credit is allowed for wages paid to an individual who is a more than 50% owner of the entity. Why? And remember, it says paid to an individual, not, not paid to a relative individual, but paid to an individual who's more than 50% owner. It stayed as if that's perfectly clear from the law, right? Which, well, you have to bounce around a bit. And I will remember, it does pause, I need to have a living relative. I don't have a problem owning my S-Corp shares as long as all of my ancestors have died. I never had a brother or sister or they died. And I never had children. Right. Right. Well, I guess they died, too. I mean, we'd have a lot of funerals to attend here in this realm. But if ever, you know, if there were no living relatives in that can those categories, then I don't have this problem. But again, vast majority of people have at least one living relative somewhere in that mix. Right. Parent, grandparent, brother, sister. Son, daughter, granddaughter, grandson, great-granddaughter, great-grandson. Somewhere in that mix, one of those is around. And if, if, if even just one of them's around, the splashback occurs. Right? Because, again, if we assign this to my great-grandchild, well, I'm a lineal ancestor which is enough to make me, you know, being my great-granddaughter's great-grandfather is enough to clobber me, right? It doesn't matter. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mess, right? That's in play. Is it all for none? Well, there is a possibility. Remember, it didn't say the rules of 51I won't apply. It said rules similar to. Does similar to give the IRS enough wiggle room to you know, say, well, yeah, but it doesn't come back to the owners. It might, though that's probably stretching things. But again, would anybody challenge the IRS if they did that? Probably not. But it's very important to remember the IRS hasn't done that. The IRS has not interpreted similar 
and I find it hard to think about why it's obvious that similar would exclude the owner. You know, it seems like if they're going to look at rules similar to, the courts are probably going to say, well, they only mean that instead of saying work opportunity credit, we change that for ERC. So I think that's an issue. What about Congress? That'd be the cleanest way to get this back to the owners if that was Congress's intent. But the first problem is it's difficult to get anything through Congress. So even if they all agreed that's what they meant, getting them all to agree to something that's as obscure as this is unlikely unless we can attach it to a bill uh, that has to pass anyway. My guess is if you tried to float this as a standalone, they would try to attach something to it to be a poison pill to the other party and, you know, or the other party would say they're not voting for it unless you do this thing that's poison pill the majority. So, you know, we kind of understand where that goes. And even among the majority party, you're going to see members of it deciding, well, we're not voting for anything unless you attach this to it. So you can see the holdout for, there's been a lot of talk about voting for more tax items until the salt caps removed. Well, you can see that become part of this. Secondly, is it really clear Congress didn't mean for this to happen? Remember I told you, if I'm a sole proprietor, I'm a partner, I don't get this, right? It doesn't matter. I can't be an employee of my proprietorship. I can't be an employee of my partnership. Right? And the IRS will definitely fight you on that one if you try to hire them. So bottom line, if they excluded those people, why would they suddenly want to say, yeah, but if you incorporated, we're all fine with that. and You can get the credit. I don't know they're fine with that. I don't know that if they really thought about it, they would object or rather saying, no, we need to write something. We're going to include them. We've got to write something for the sole proprietors and for the partners to get them into this. So I don't know. I find this an interesting problem. But I keep being asked about it, so I thought I've got to talk about it this week. So yeah, by the way, the update covered about a half hour. The rest of this thing covered this thing. So, so it's kind of like an extra session. But this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of April the 5th, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society. If you have any questions, you can send me a, uh, questions at edzars.currentfortaxdevelopments.com. It's a little fun to get back to them this time of year. Tax season, I have that too. So we're kind of bouncing around with that. But we will kind of see where we're going on that, you know, and work with that. I also do try to follow the Connect discussions as best I can. The state societies in Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, and Washington. So if you're in those states, you're participating in their Connect boards, I'll try to keep an eye out for questions there I think I might be able to be helpful on and try to post something in response there. Uh, otherwise, we're going to see you come up next week. Hey, we're heading toward the 15th. As I said, don't forget, that really is the 15th for Trust and Calendar C-Corp. So remember to extend those guys or get them out. Those are going to be two options for them. And don't forget that first estimate if your client really is going to freak out about having to pay the what's relatively low rate of interest for one month on being a month late. Just, you know, if they're going to freak out about that, then yeah, whatever. You know, we'll go for that. But otherwise, we'll see you back here next week when we'll talk about current federal tax developments.